I think Oregon is a very special place because where in America can an immigrant kid come not knowing a lick of English, be able to go through school, come out, create businesses, create jobs? Because they don't have opportunity to go back to school. When they came here, most of them, they come here because of their kids like me. And they have to, um, you know, they have to cook, they have to make money as soon as possible. And they not only support the family here, but also have to support family in Vietnam. Vietnamese people are very driven as an immigrant to this country. I think if they can't find stuff, people have started their own business and they started import stuff. You can become an accountant when you're 40. You can't become a dancer when you're 40. So this is your time. Go! This is Vietnamese Portland, documenting the stories of Portland's Vietnamese Americans. I'm Brian Miller. And I'm Hannah Mersbach. And we are students at Lewis and Clark College, partnered with the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon. We are honored to share accounts of immigrant life in Portland. In the last episode, we learned about how Vietnamese Americans navigated Portland school systems, from elementary school to college. We also heard about experiences of discrimination and isolation, as well as efforts to keep the Vietnamese language and culture alive within the community. Today we focus on what comes after school. We'll hear from individuals about their first experiences in the Portland job market and how they eventually found their careers. We will listen to the stories of Portlanders involved in the culinary and creative arts and explore how each of their identities shaped their work. New arrivals had to find work quickly to support their families, all the while facing language barriers and adjusting to a new culture. We first hear from Margaret Vu about the many responsibilities she had to balance. In those years, yeah, I did um, office work, selling like department store, most, most likely office work. Uh, at the same time, I always trying to finish school. I move with family, and since my family saw women and older and didn't speak English, so I became like a, the head of household. So I always working and trying to take classes. It's always like that. So I, I work here and there and wherever. Like Vu, many Vietnamese Americans were still learning English. T. Luong explains how she overcame that hurdle and found sustainable work. The first time when I came here, I'm very worried because, you know, language barrier and, you know, worry everything. But I, in my mind, I don't mind to work any uh, job that then, you know, can make uh, money to support my son and also I have to support my mom in Vietnam. And uh, so the first time when I came here, I went to uh, beauty school to get the nail license because uh, compared with another job, a nail license kind of, you know, work for nail uh, salon is easier and just, you know, went to school for a few months and so you can get the license. Lu Wong explains why many Vietnamese women have often worked in the nail salon industry a field Vietnamese Americans have dominated since the first wave of immigration in 1975. Because they don't have opportunity to go back to school. When they came here, most of them, they come here because of their kids, like me. And they have to, um, you know, they have to cook, they have to make money as soon as possible. And they not only support the family here, but also have to support family in Vietnam. Most of them, I can say like a 90 percent woman came here, they start doing nail. And I can say just a 10 percent or 15 percent that they leave with that job. And they, most of them, they just stay with that. In recent years, nail salons have faced pressure to switch to safer, non-toxic products. 
Margaret Vu explains how, after getting a footing in the U.S., she worked in cooperation with OHSU, trying to get nail salons to change their products. The reason I involved with it, because um, I was Vietnamese, and nail salon was the, was the business of the Vietnamese. So they, uh, they want at least a Vietnamese in there, so I worked with them. It went very well. I interviewed nail salon here, interviewed workers. Many of the workers supported the change in products as they are the ones directly affected by the toxins. However, business owners were not so easily convinced. They did not want to change the products because, of course, um, the new products is not as effective. It doesn't look as nice, doesn't stay as long, things like that. And the county even prepared to give them simple at first, to in exchange for the change, but they refused. So we couldn't do anything. So uh, we stopped there. I thought we could do something, but when we encounter the reality, we could see that I feel sad. I feel sad because the business owner doesn't want to change and they're free, they, they can make choice. We can't do anything. And their worker afraid to voice their voice. And so it's really hard and um, very sad. I, I realize that it's, um, it's difficult to change. Although many Vietnamese Americans' first job were at nail salons, many moved on to seek higher education. T. Luong eventually earned an associate's degree with the help of her cousin. And after uh, I go for nail salon by year, and my cousin said that take go back to school because you have a basic. You know, in, in Vietnam, I'm, I learned English in Vietnam. Of course, it's so different here, but I have a basic. So my cousin then say, okay, go back to school and I can support you. So I went back to school and I went to PCC to got English and two years degree at PCC. And then it's like looking for a job. While many had to go to school to get a degree to improve their career prospects, others already had the experience to jumpstart their careers. Tai Tu was able to find a job in Portland quickly because of his teaching experience in Vietnam. His son, Tao Tu, translates for him. So first of all, I was a teacher aide at Vesto, the elementary school belong to Portland Public School. So I worked over there for six months. I got that job from the introduction of my English second language teacher at PCC. I showed my certificate when I teach in Vietnam and the Poland Public School District, they accepted me. Unfortunately, this path did not last long for two. One summer, I didn't get any uh, earning from the school district, and I had to work for foster farm. Mm. Uh, not only working uh, at the foster farm, and I uh, accidentally uh, become uh, the interpreter for many Vietnamese newcomers uh, uh, that work for foster farm at that time. Too soon transitioned to a job in manufacturing. So I worked for Nike totally 20 years. Uh, I actually uh, had retirement at a certain age, but I continue working for Nike uh, around uh, eight and a half years after my retirement age. 
Uh, I make an air show for shoe. Every shoe that belong to Nike that had uh, the the bottom base, I uh, was responsible to bump air into that certain plastic area. Tai Tu's son, Tao, who now works in a radiology clinic in Vancouver, found temporary work before getting a degree. First of all, December 1991, I first, you know, I got a job to do with Evergreen. The Evergreen company hired people during Christmas time to pick up Christmas material boxes from airplane and Frankfurt to the truck and deliver throughout the house. Yeah, and it was so excited for me to work next to the airplane. Most of us came from the same time and we talked to each other like, wow, if we was in Vietnam, they didn't let us get very close to airplane at all. <laughs> but now in the US, we was free to get in and get out airplane at that time to put up things and lot, unlock things. I was very excited. After this seasonal job, Tao Tu was able to get more steady work. Then in summer, I applied for a job at boss office, and I do remember, I could not remember the last name, but uh, the first name, his first name is Ray. He worked for HR at boss office, and he interviewed me, and he said that he was in Vietnam during the war. So I got the job at the boss office in summer 1992. That time got a really good rate with over six dollars and seventy-five cents per hour, compared to the minimum rate at that time, only four dollars and seventy-five cents. Both Tu and his brother worked at the post office before deciding to go back to school. And because we work very hard, so they come to us and ask us to continue working with them, and they let us go home and think about that. And the next day we come back, we said, sorry, we have to go back to school because our English at that time was so, we're not strong enough, so we need to go to school and learn more. Like too, many immigrants decide to go back to school to learn English and have more job opportunities later on. Others turn to organizations like the Immigrant and Refugee Community Organization, or ERCO, for help learning English and applying for jobs. Chao Juan was one of the many immigrants who ERCO helped. Uh, we have the uh, people from ERCO job training staff involved with us, help us to go through the training to get some basic skill because uh, when we just came here, language was uh, one of the most challenged. And um, for me, I, I, I learned English when back in Vietnam, but my brother and sister, they had a hard time uh, so, I'll go provide training, basic skill, basic uh, language to get a job, to help with the resume and how to apply for a job. So, ERCO is a big agency who they help us when we just started. After getting more involved with ERCO, Wynne was able to pursue a career that was more meaningful to her by providing the same support for newcomers that her family was offered. I speak some English and uh, I volunteer to help with uh, to translate, interpret for the audio group. They need to um, to be to participate in some uh, uh, job training or uh, trimet training. So I volunteer to be the interpreter. I don't know when I help them. I feel like mm, I wish I can do some other job to provide direct service to those people. They they just 
came to the country, they don't understand language and uh, culture. There's a lot of things, and I wish I can be that person to directly help them. And after I graduated from BCC, and I I, I come back to volunteer for Urko again, and then when a job posted, I I got I applied and I got it. Tui Tu, who now runs her own transportation and urban planning consulting business, found success through Portland networking. Portland is small and everyone knows each other. And um, the engineering community, the transportation community, even the urban planning community, it's so integrated. And I network within all of those spaces, so I know a lot of people within that space. But if I were to say hypothetically, if I pick myself up and pop myself into another city, um, Chicago, New York, Seattle, LA, it wouldn't be that easy. Many Vietnamese Americans found themselves working to give back to their community, whether by providing social services, sharing their skills, or building new businesses. Some of the most successful businesses connected to the community through food. One thing that many refugees found difficult about the transition to America was the lack of familiar foods. Vietnamese Americans soon began opening up restaurants that serve popular Vietnamese dishes. Vin Wong opened his first restaurant, Pho Van, on Southeast Division 27 years ago, but his memories of the restaurant industry go farther back. My sponsor in, in Lake Oswego, they were able to find my dad a job at this pharmaceutical company, and that was his first job. With that, my dad found a second job at a Chinese restaurant. So he was cooking for that for, uh, for many years too at night time. Uh, I remember going to uh, the restaurant to visit him, he was so late getting home, and it was nice to just visit him. He says that the absence of Vietnamese food in Portland was only temporary. Vietnamese people are very driven as an immigrant in this country. I think if they can't find stuff, people have started their own business, and they started import stuff. For Vin Wong, opening a restaurant was a way of sharing his culture with his new home. I'm very proud of what we have accomplished. Opening our first restaurant in, in 92 is already exposing our culture and our food to, to Portland. Because the things I think what's better way of exposing your culture than food, right? That's how people bonded. And I think for us was to open the first restaurant and then kind of like, you know, let people know what pho was. We, we love pho and then we like this, this soup is so good. How come there aren't that many restaurants? And so we thought we took the first step is to open up a restaurant and expose that to Portland. That opens so many doors and, you know, we meet so many people. Wong has now expanded to two other locations and helped pave the way for many more Vietnamese restaurants in Portland. We, we closed that first location out and we bought the piece of land out, still around the second, close on Division. It's about a block north of Southeast 82nd and Division. And that's still our flagship today. I think that has exposed to so many, bring so many people together, like Vietnamese, not just Vietnamese people, uh, Korean, Thai, Laos, you know, and also, of course, Portland, as I'm referring to Caucasians, that come to, to the restaurant. Since then, we have opened one in the Pearl, which is where we're at now, and also, we also have another one out in Beaverton, Southwest Beaverton. The word pho, uh, you know, 27 years later, it has become a household name. And so I think with that, I think we're very proud of that, you know, just introduce that to Portland. And since then, too, many, many Vietnamese restaurants has opened. Yeah, I think, I think culturally, I think Portland has become very diverse. The lasting success, he says, comes from the passion his family has for the cuisine. And we were probably, because back then, we were probably the second or third Vietnamese food restaurant in town. And I'm happy to say, uh, I think we're the, we're the only one that's still around. 
after 20, I want to say 26, 27 years now, we're still, the, still owned by the same family. But other restaurants still around, but they have sold to other people. So we've been around for a while. We still have the passion for it. We still like what we do. I think it, it does apply to anything that you do, right? Um, if you still love what you do and enjoy it and you still provide the life that you want it to, you make that happen. Like Wong and his family, William Vong and his wife, Christina Liu, founded several Vietnamese restaurants in Portland. They began with Ha and VL on Southeast 82nd Avenue in 2004, which is now run by their son. They now operate Rose VL Deli on Southeast Powell and have been planning to open up a restaurant in Beaverton near Nike World Headquarters. After the Vietnam War, William Vuong spent a decade in prison because he worked as a special forces commander for the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. Once he came to Portland in 1993, he worked part-time as a teacher and opened a janitorial company hoping to employ former prisoners before breaching into the restaurant business. Uh, you know, because I, uh, I think I can, can help my uh, people. Cutlery look like me, former prisoner. So I try to open the uh, sanitarian company. But I have to learn from Beaverton. The coverall company I learned from, from A to Z, how to clean. And I opened a big company with 24 account. Every night after teaching, you know, continue teaching after every night my family go to clean. And I inspect every night until 3 o'clock in the morning you home. Work 18 hours every night. While, while the learning English, you know, while continue my get my BA and bilingual, part-time, pathway program, license, you know, the teacher, I spent five years. After five years, Vuong got his teaching degree and began working for the Portland Public School District, while also managing a mini-mart with his wife. Sixteen years ago, after janitorial, I feel very stressful for working very hard. I'm looking forward to work at the uh, mini-mart. At the 82nd and Hogay, I will open the mini-mart. But every day, very stressful, I open from say to 10 o'clock p.m. Any people come to steal stuff. You know, I let my wife, wife work, teaching my wife take care of the mini-mart. In 2004, the Vongs decided to close the mini-mart and open their first restaurant. Stop cleaning and look for the, about something you qualify by open about the sandwich and coffee only. The first time I opened over there, just selling sandwich and coffee. But don't have enough money. I said, oh, oh, okay, sandwich and try one shot. Because my mom very good cook and she learn from my mom. We open one. And not that many customers come because the home style cooking. Completely different. I make the big revolution. William Vuong's trick is that he likes to keep it simple, offering a few specific dishes a day. My menu only two a day. Only Sunday we have a three. Okay, what for? I, I, I get involved with the restaurant and, and some of my friend is the owner. I look in the kitchen and they, 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 they had a big pot there. And you for everything soup. One one big part of broth to you everything. Just to put the ingredient a different kind of dish. I don't like that way. They only do. Very, very special. Vuong and his wife plan to hand off their growing restaurant empire to their children. You can see in the Instagram and Facebook every single day. They're talking about us. But I get too old. I need to retire. I retired from the public, public, public school when I was 75, and three years ago, 28 now, still working 
12 hour day. No way. While some Vietnamese Americans like Vin Wong and William Wong were drawn to the culinary arts, others chose careers in the creative arts. Adele Pham is a documentary filmmaker. Her documentaries are heavily inspired by her cultural identity. I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. I always identified as half Vietnamese, but I didn't really know what it meant to be Vietnamese because I was born in the U.S. So I grew up in a very white city with a mixed identity. Pham's interest in filmmaking was sparked by her experiences at Laurelhurst Theater on Burnside. So I really grew up going to the movies. This is before it was a theater pub. You know, you could just stay and watch double features all day long. So I always had a fascination with movies. And I saw my first real documentary there, not a news documentary, a documentary about Robert Crumb. So I always had it in my head that making documentaries would be a cool thing to do. Flash forward to today, and Adele Pham has released a feature-length documentary. My feature film, Nailed It, is about the Vietnamese nail salon industry, and it's currently streaming on PBS's platform. The idea for the film came from her ties with the Vietnamese community. came up um, in this progressive gathering of Vietnamese young people I, was, I went to, and it first started out as an idea for an investigation about, you know, the health hazards inside the nail salon. But as soon as I started to investigate the Vietnamese nail salon is when I really started getting interested in the culture. And I have to say, what kept drawing me to it, drawing me back to it, was the sense that I was getting more involved in my culture and learning more about my people through this nail salon. Fan focuses her documentaries on individual stories, often ones that have not been shared with a wide audience before. I think that documentary has really kind of changed from fly on the wall to people telling their personal stories. And something I've noticed about my generation is that more and more people who are second generation are wanting to tell their family history, how they got here, how they survived. Um, you know, what we're like, what kind of food we eat, why we use mail, um, and just really trying to understand what it means to be American and not. Pham is now working on a documentary about hate crimes in Oregon. What inspired me to make the hate crime film in Oregon was my experience of growing up as an outsider in Portland. I dug a little bit and found out about, wow, these that the state was based on, right? Uh, that was really insane to me that I grew up in Portland, um, went to public school, was a bright student, and nobody ever told me about these exclusion laws that were in the first state constitution, and that the entire Pacific Northwest was designed to be a white homeland territory. So this is information that um, I'm inspired to make you a compelling narrative that uh, people will appreciate and be entertained by and share with other people. You know, we don't have another generation of young people wondering why they feel isolated in a place like Oregon. With her documentaries about nail salons and hate crimes in Oregon, Adele Pham aims to give back to her community and gain a greater understanding of it. Vu Pham, another Portland filmmaker, also focuses his films on topics related to his own identity as a refugee. 
His work has been significantly influenced by his personal trauma, existential philosophy, and transitory life on the fringes. Through most of my youth, I had a tough time adjusting and finding my own personal path in the world. And um, I knew that I wanted to be creative somehow. I just didn't know exactly how. And as a young person, I was told by my elementary school teachers that I was a good writer. And so there was a period of time when I fantasized about being a novelist. It wasn't until I was in uh, junior high that I realized that I really wanted to tell stories through film. And so it would probably take me another 15 years after that before I could really make my first film. Vu Pham is involved with nearly every aspect of his films, but notes that collaboration is vital for his vision. By the time that I was making my own films, I was already involved with other people who were far more technically superior than I was, and they just needed a person to lead them towards a common vision, and that was me. And so I write, I direct, I produce, and uh, sometimes I'll act in my films as well. He uses filmmaking to express his inner dialogue. So it's all only in my mind that I would see my films, but I had a pretty strong vision of what my films would look like. Sort of a strange relationship to have with a thing or a person if they don't ever exist outside of you, but you know them so well at the same time that uh, they're almost real. Filmmaking was an opportunity for me to take what was only inside me and somewhat dormant, but at the same time alive and take it outside of myself and now I have something that's not just in my head anymore. He's currently working on his first full-length film, The Horizon is a Scar, My Love, heavily influenced by his own experience as a refugee. Interestingly enough, this first feature film deals with immigration and the idea of refugees, but in a different way. Um, it does not do it explicitly, it does it implicitly, and through these implicit means reveals very complex layering of what it means to be uh, a refugee or an immigrant and it essentially uh, expands that definition to include more of the general existential transience of being human. I like stories about ordinary people fighting extraordinarily for something. My stories don't have heroes. There's no easy answers. There's no, you know, absolutes of any sort, really. All my stories are largely inspired by my observations of uh, ordinary people living in these very indifferent worlds. I think that uh, my immigrant experiences have uh, deeply affected my filmmaking. My stories tend to deal with outsiders, outsiders who struggle quite a bit to find home. And that doesn't necessarily have to be about homeless people, obviously. Uh, it could be about anyone who is just um, feeling transient and, and cast out and, and uh, unable to, I guess, get through to an impenetrable circle. We now turn to Min Tran, a visiting associate professor of dance at Reed College and the artistic director of his own dance company. He became involved with the arts at an early age in Vietnam. Of eight kids, I was the only one to get introduced to art because art is an expensive commodity in a third world country only the elite would actually go to art museum, to live concerts, you know. And so um, none of my brother and sister experienced that when in their child adolescence. 
I was the only one. I was showering with just, let's go to the concert here, let's go to the concert there, let's go to the museum here, and opening galas and things like that, because their lifestyle changed completely. Min Tran quickly became interested in the performing arts, specifically the opera, and joined the Peking Opera Company in Saigon. And so on, in addition to the regular academic class and then in the afternoon, rather to go to all the sport things, I went to the training school to become the Vietnamese opera performer. And so that's how I was introduced to the performing arts. So not just in dance. Those opera performers, you actually have to practice in all four disciplines, acting, dancing, acrobats, and then um, singing. And so that's how I was trained when I was five. When the communists took over Vietnam, Train continued to pursue dance. So I got trained more so in the dance department, more so than in the singing or acting departments. And when the communists took over, we switched it all the way to propaganda dancing. I was still dancing then, but not as much because I just say, gosh, this is not what, exactly what I was hoping for. And I sort of like drift out of it and just being a company's member, just sort of in the club, like the red handkerchief, because you're young and you're a communist member, you're part of the communist and you're wearing this red handkerchief. And so that's what I was part of it. Until when I went to school here, when I escaped and so there's two years no dancing where we escaped. Tran came to the U.S. in 1980 as a political refugee, attending Milwaukee High School and working two to three jobs at a time. He found it difficult to continue dancing. And they say, oh boy, don't dance in high school. So it was a good thing that my uh, art teachers was happened to be also is a dancing coach. He said, well, you can show up and watch us rehearse if you want. Uh, and then I tell you, and she was actually taking courses at Portland State University. She said, once you graduate, go to Portland State because they have really good dance company there and they have a great dance um, teacher there. This is back then in the 80s when they had actually a uh, now defunct um, a contemporary dance company. And so she said, go there and you would love it. But right now, just four years, just watch us. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. So I didn't get to dance at all. I danced in the basement, so that's pretty much it until when I get to college. He studied business at Portland State University and continued dance for fun, although soon he realized it could be more than that. Beginning of contemporary dance with classes at 8 o'clock. Oh my god. And you need to take a bus from Milwaukee to downtown. That means they have to leave right at 6 o'clock to make it to class because, and of course, all the dance class no tardiness, because after five minutes, that's it. Your credit is gone. It's just, you just, you not even count as there anymore. But I loved it, you know, I, I can't wait to get to class. Then my, I still remember, she, now she's a founder, we still dance together. Terry Matherman was my first dance teacher, and she said, you don't belong here, you should go to like advanced level. And I was like, no, I'm comfortable with this because I was, I didn't even know like what people wear in class. I mean, I don't know the cultures of what's, contemporary dance classes like. So I just wearing like, you know, like a PE shorts and tank top and going and everybody else is like t-shirts and sweatpants. Like, okay, I guess I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> Trans teachers saw his potential and continued to push him, eventually getting him an audition for a dance company. And then she, they came to me and they say, would you like to be in a company? Because I know you've been looking for like work all the time. Because even back then, I had three jobs. I work at the bank at night, literally at night, at 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. And then I work at a box office and a parking office. I work wherever I can work because 
I need the money because with nobody else would like get me any money. I mean, my parents can't give me any money. And so finally I say, so you could just like stop working one of those jobs and you can dance who you work and you get paid. And I was actually surprised that they actually hired me at the age of 19 to be in a professional company. Um, so in the morning, they were my teachers and in the afternoon, they were my colleague. We were else with them. So that's how the dance just took off from there. Soon, his teachers suggested he go to New York to expand his career. Tran was presented with a difficult choice, pursue his career in New York or get his degree in Portland. I mean, you know, we risked our life to come here uh, and I'm on my business degree. I'm not really actually technically on a tr dance track at all. And she just said, don't worry. And I still remember she took me to my academic advisor, which is my accounting teacher. She also happened to be the dance lover. So I still remember what she told me in the office, she said, you can become an accountant when you're 40, but you can't become a dancer when you're 40. So this is your time. Go! So um, I took an absent. Um, then I left. I was really scared. Because even then, you know, my English is still broken English. You know, this is talking about six years. And I've never been anywhere else outside of Portland, outside of Oregon. They all chip in money. <laughs> and give me. <laughs> I still remember, like, she went around and she asked all the professors, say, did you really believe in him to give him the money? After some time in New York, Tran returned to Portland to complete his dance certification and his business degree. I did my practicum performance and I got all the press from Willamette Week back then was big, you know, and back then there was downtown uh, were writing, and all the critics came and they wrote about, and I said, this is a, it's just, you know, it's only a school project, it's not even a professional, but yet they already, like, oh no, he's the one that upcoming, and so, it was, pressure was on. I was still working in an accounting part, and I was still working in the bank, and then I got a job after I graduated, I was a job as a budget um, analyst for Multnomah County. So I still have to do that because I literally have to survive by myself. You know, my parents, it's, they were still only on welfare and stuff. So. After graduation, Tran returned to New York to complete his dance certificate. He soon started his own dance company and decided to teach dance at a collegiate level. But it wasn't until he attended a program at UCLA that he connected his dance with his cultural identity. I was sent to UCLA because they were offering a program called Asian Pacific Performance Exchange Program. So there was 40 artists were selected, but only five from the United States. The other 35 were from all over Asia. They are master their own form in music, dance, theater, film design, even. So 40 of us stay in the frat room um, together. So we took over one building. And these artists are serious masters. And so I get to work for eight weeks with them, 24-7. We eat, we sleep, we work together. So I did that for, and I was lucky enough to get chosen two years in a row. So in the summer, I was gone. I mean, I'm just, but you know, that eight weeks, you totally dropped out of earth. You nobody know even like what you're doing because you're just working seriously with these people for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But that's because of that, it, it sort of formed me the network and sort of began to search for my, my true identity. And it's not actually, I have to admit, not until then, I finally look at myself as an Asian. I worked so hard to be part of the America for so long. Like, 
okay, I have to be within this community. I have to be within this community. So even my work back in the earlier work, it was always want to be the Western look. It's just there's nothing about the Asian flavor in that at all. Until, let me see, 1990, no, 1996-98, my first work about Asia. Since then, Tran's work as a choreographer and dancer has focused a lot more on Asian culture, tackling socio-political themes as well as religious and traditional ones. Like I did a work, the, the Road Home, part of it was about my experience to being a refugee, and then I did a whole major work called Forgotten Memories about the uh, Cambodian genocide because of being a refugee and escapes, and so I, I was more into that part more so than the genocide itself, the casualty of any war. Regardless, it's what is it that I'm interested in. I was creating all of those dance in a confined space. And it still was. It was actually, Forgot Memory was created, an uh, installation. In, I, I ran to the ballroom, and then there was five different installations. And so it was in a confined space. So it's not like an open proscenium for audience to see. So the artists have to gather over to this area 10 by 10. And then so they have to move around in it. And I never thought of that was because of my own personal experience in that sense. But yeah, every time when I talk about being political or being political, period, I'm in a confined space. I'm working right now because my, um, my parents have passed away. I've been researching funeral rites in Buddhism and Hinduism and Muslim as well, and even Egyptians. And so I'm trying to get a response from it, from a personal point of view, I say, huh, this is actually quite interesting. It, I try to pick out something that interesting from these religions and about the tradition aspect of it. Say, how do we grieve, going through grief, but also how do we say goodbye to someone we love in a traditional way, in a ceremonial way, from all of these traditions. And so the new work is, again, okay, some people can say, yeah, that's have a religious factor in it but I'm really looking at it in a tradition sense. In this episode, we've explored how Vietnamese Americans often had to reinvent themselves, taking their skills and putting them to new use in restaurants, creative arts, and businesses. We've aimed to show the wide range of jobs people held, from working at nail salons or the post office, to working in the engineering or medical field, along with many other occupations. On the next episode, we'll hear about the work being done by social activists, from tenants' rights to better medical care. We'll look at how Vietnamese Americans are striving for a better life for themselves and their city. And um, wanted to see if there was something that um, I can continue to, to be engaged at a deeper level with the Vietnamese community, to learn about what their needs are. I think, um, I think owning your own space, owning your own land, is a really important first step to being able to build community, make sure your established roots and can't be displaced. We have been displaced once and we're in the process of being displaced again just through rent increases. So, um, leadership development, making sure that staff is diverse throughout, whether it's the judicial or executive or legislative branch, like we want representation. This is Vietnamese Portland, documenting the stories of Portland's Vietnamese Americans. I'm Hannah Mersbach. And I'm Brian Miller. And this project is funded by the Council of Independent Colleges Humanities Research for the Public Good. You can find our podcasts on VietnamesePortland.org, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Full transcripts and recording of our interviews, as well as historical documents and photographs, are available on our website. 
Thank you to everybody who shared their stories in this episode and to our partner, the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon.